So we're in the sixth sermon in our series of Mark, Walking with Jesus. Mark's gospel's been a a wild ride so far, hasn't it? Uh, It's, uh, you know, last week we had a violent, demon-possessed man. What What was the name he gave when they asked what his name was? There you go, you're listening, Legion. And he had demons cast out into a herd of what? Pigs. And so this gospel just keeps picking up steam and getting wilder and wilder. And you probably think there's no possible way to top that story from last week in the tomb of the Gerasenes. But have no fear, this story today might top it. Uh, This story is unique in the gospels because it's really not just about Jesus. Uh, Rather, it gives the details of the death of John the Baptist. Of course, Jesus and John are forever connected. John was the last prophet of the Old Covenant. Uh, Jesus said of him, there is no man born of woman greater than John. John was his cousin. He was his forerunner. He was his herald. He was the one who baptized him. And so that resume is why there is, in this gospel about Jesus, an entire story dedicated to John. John alone gets an entire story dedicated to the circumstances of his death. One of the most popular polls in America when it comes to registering fears, what are the fears of America, is done by Chapman University. It's like they're one big thing that they do. And so it just so happens that today's story in Mark hits the top two fears of Americans in the same story. Well, what are they? Number two fear in America today is someone I love dying. That's number two. That will happen to John today. He was a beloved prophet. The number one fear in America today, according to this poll, is corrupt government officials. Did they weigh off on that? No? Okay. So if you're looking for a corrupt government in Scripture, we certainly find it in the Herod dynasty. As Herod Antipas gives the order to have John executed for the crime of preaching the unvarnished truth of God's word. We do live in a time right now when saying exactly what the Bible says without apology will not likely come without consequences. Increasingly, we feel the tides changing, the pendulum swinging, as more and more power is accumulated by a government becoming more and more secular. Christians know intuitively that the time to stand firm on our faith is coming and in all reality is here. And thus, we need to be prepared to stand faithful in an age of rapid change. The definitions of values and virtues and vices are in flux right now, culturally speaking, though we know in reality they are fixed in the word of God. Thus, the rub. Will you stand faithful to the truth, to the gospel, to the word of God? John made his choice. Jesus made his choice. We have to make our choice as well. This is a crossroads for every Christian, every pastor, every church to make. Will we take up the mantle of Herod and Pilate, men who took deals and compromised themselves to remain in power to keep a false peace? Or will we take up the mantle of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ? And that mantle that I'm calling that today is faithful to the end. The plain-spoken, bold truth of God's word will always be hated 
by this world. We know that because it's very simple. Darkness hates light. John the Baptist reminds us that our responsibility to God is to be faithful and leave the consequences to him. Join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for the word. Lord, our desire is to grow closer to you today through this text. Lord, we come to you needing a jolt of strength to live the life that you have called us to live. And we know your Holy Spirit provides that when we ask. So Lord, we ask today that this text, this strange text on the surface, Lord, would embolden us to stand firm in our faith, faithful to the end. As we look at John and as we look at Christ, Lord, may we stand in the same faith they stood in. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's text begins Mark 6, 14. If you like to turn in your Bibles, I always recommend, even if you look at the screen, the paper Bible's a good habit. The story that immediately precedes this is connected. So the story right before where we're going to study today is Mark 6, 7 through 13. This is the account of Jesus sending out the 12. He sends his 12 apostles out two by two. By the way, the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons stole that from us. Just want you to know that. Into various cities to preach. They were given authority to cast out demons and heal many who were sick. And so Jesus, at this point, was already growing in fame. We've studied that. We've talked about the crowds. He's already becoming uh, notable. His notoriety is growing. And as you can imagine, increasing himself, multiplying his work by six, these teams of two going out and doing more healings, more miracles, more preaching, caused quite a stir. Verse 14 Starts with the phrase, and Herod heard of it. So I just wanted you to see what Herod heard of. When, we, when you start a verse and you don't know where it came from, you want to look backwards and see why it said that. Herod heard of it. Of what? Of the fame of Jesus increasing and of the notable impact that he was having. So Herod heard of that. Now we'll start with Mark six fourteen. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. Others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So the reputation of Jesus was building and building, and people were starting to talk. The buzz was growing. Who is this guy? Lots of options were thrown out there. Prophets of old, other texts of the Gospels give us some of those names. Maybe it's Jeremiah. Those names were thrown out to try to explain. But one suggestion from the crowd caught Herod's ear. Someone said, maybe it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. And Herod's eyes, my eyes don't open up very wide. I wish they did. His eyes got real wide. And his heart started to pump a little bit. Why? Well, you see, there was a superstition, and we even have it today. In those days, though, it still existed, that if anyone were to come back from the dead, the assumption was it would be to pay you back for the reason they died. We still kind of have that today, right? We have that. Now, they believed that. Herod would have believed that. So he began to hear what Jesus was doing. He immediately assumed John had been raised and was coming to get him. Now, we know that's not true. We know this was Jesus. 
John was not doing these things. But Mark, the author of the book, realizes now when he mentions this statement about the beheading, he's like, oh, wait a minute, now i got to tell the story because I haven't mentioned it up till this point in the Gospels. Because if you've been reading the Gospels like we have, cover to cover, you knew John was in prison. We heard that in chapter 1. But not till now do you hear, oh, he's been killed. And so what happens from verse 17 through 29 is called a flashback. You know what these are. Uh, the, uh, the dream sequence in a movie, the screen gets wobbly and hazy. And then the voice of SpongeBob comes over the top and says, one year earlier. And, and uh, so then you get ready to go back and tell a story of how this beheading happened. So a rare flashback in the Gospels. Now pick up Mark 6, 17 for the flashback. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Oh, drama. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. We're going to pause there. So for our outline today, I want to show you three outcomes of a faithful prophet. And just so you know, number one and number three are guaranteed when you're faithful. Number two always depends on the crowd, right? Jesus told us there are, there are soil types. And so number two will depend on the crowd. Number one and three are always the same for a faithful prophet. So number one, John's faithful work as a prophet, we see God's word is applied. That's number one. God's word is applied. This is the shocker of the century for you, I know. A faithful prophet is determined by whether or not he correctly, truthfully, and boldly applies God's word to real life. That's the test of a prophet. Remember, Jesus said the goal of salt is to be applied to the food. He said the goal of a lamp is to be lit and burning on top of the desk. The goal of God's word is to be applied to real life. And sometimes it's like rubbing alcohol. You know, when you, you find out when you got that hand sanitizer on, ooh, paper cut. You know, there's that little moment when you realize that pain, but it's probably a good pain. That's the word of God. So let's talk about the context here. There are a lot of Herods in the Bible. All right, hang on to your hats, actually. All right, this is going to get weird. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. The Herod dynasty is complicated and full of murder and adultery and power struggles and probably intermarrying that makes this a very weird family tree to follow. Herod the Great is the daddy Herod. He's the patriarch. Most of his reign was before Jesus was even born. He was responsible for making the temple compound into a big, luxurious uh, temple, larger than even Solomon's, all right? This was a wonder to behold. Herod was overseeing that. The conservative Jews did not like Herod or any of the Herods because they weren't really Jewish. They, were, they called it Edomian, but we know that's connected to Edomite in their bloodline. They weren't particularly religious. They weren't moral. But the Herods played the right kind of politics with Rome, which allowed them power. Herod the Great was known for his famous command to slaughter all the infants in Bethlehem, but he died shortly after this, and his rule was divided up amongst some of his sons, who, because it was divided, were not actually kings, but rather given the title Tetrarch. So if you see that, that word Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth of the kingdom. So perhaps in the Bible you've seen these names sprinkled in. Agrippa, Archelaus, Aristobulus, Philip, those are all Herods. 
The Herod of today's story is Herod Antipas, Antipas, who ruled for a long time over Galilee. So that was his spot. Now, Herod Antipas had already imprisoned John the Baptist at this point. Why? Because his wife did not like John. Not only did she not like John personally, she did not like John's preaching. Well, what did John say? Well, here's another backstory. Herod actually stole his wife Herodias from his brother, Philip. And no, before you ask, Philip was not dead at the time. This was not a poor, helpless widow, okay? Philip was very much alive. Not only that, Herod was married to another woman at the time he pulled this trick. So Herod divorced his wife and stole the wife of his living brother. Now, for a Herod, this is kind of tame, all right? Uh, Herod the Great killed one of his sons because he thought he would take his throne. He killed 46 members of the Sanhedrin at one time. Killed his mother-in-law, killed one of his wives. That's on top of the babies in Bethlehem, okay? So Caesar Augustus once famously remarked, it is better to be a dog in the house of Herod than one of his children. The family was corrupt and sin was deeply entrenched at every single level and somehow they presided over God's people. So here you have a murderous family who would kill any dissenter at the drop of a hat, and John the Baptist goes to him, to his face, and says, you know, God's word says it's not right to take your brother's wife. Your marriage is an affront to God. That's called boldly applying God's word. That's the backbone of a prophet which is uncomfortable and dangerous, yet true. And guess what? Verse 18 says, let's add a little salt to this. John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful to have your brother's wife. Two things here. Number one, he said it to his face. Note the pronoun. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He said it to his face. Secondly, that Greek verb, get ready, hold on to your socks. The Greek is imperfect, active, indicative. Did you get it? Yes. What that means is that that phrase, had been saying, uh, the Greek signifies an action that happens in the past repeatedly. Okay? So he did not say this one time. This wasn't a build up courage and say it once. It was a regular staple of John the Baptist preaching. He said it over and over. He was writing Herod over this. Now, I just want to remind you about the preaching style of John the Baptist, because you might be thinking, oh, but pastor, I'm sure his tone was right when he said it. I'm sure when John said what he said to Herod, it sounded something like this. Hey, Harry, old buddy, old pal, I know about the old wife situation. Don't worry, bro. Life is messy. Girl, just wash your face. Give yourself lots of grace. God brought you to it. He can bring you through it. Now, hold on. I got a church conference to go to. I got to go speak at a growth conference. I'm the keynote speaker. Catch you later, Harry. I'm pretty sure that's not how it went. We have one recorded sermon in Scripture of John the Baptist to give us a little taste. Maybe how this went. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God to come? 
bear fruit in keeping repentance. Do not say to yourself, we have Abraham as, I, as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut, thrown into the fire. His fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gather wheat into the barn, and the chaff he burns with unquenchable fire. Right? Yeah. So, how do you think John's message to Herod went? Yeah, me too. John did the work of a prophet. He spoke plain, uncomfortable, bold truth. He feared God more than man. He assumed that God actually wants people to repent and talked about sin clearly without making their statements die the death of a thousand apologies. You wonder why our culture is in the equivalent of late-stage cancer on life support, barely able to discern up from down. It's because sin has no boundary, no limiting factor, and without men and women speaking the spirit-filled truth of the word, there is no restraint placed upon evil. Church, we must not just study the word in this place. We must apply it out there, out there in the world. We need bold biblical preaching to come back into fashion again. And praise God, I'm not the only brother in this place that can do it, okay? Because I've heard Eric, Ted, Angelo, Keith, and Kramer, and I know that these men can do it too. I'm greatly encouraged. Now, truth is the only remedy and restraint for sin. So sometimes you got to flex your John the Baptist muscles a little bit. You got to think, do I have this in me? Maybe you just got to go to somebody at the grocery store and just say something true and walk away. No, don't do that. But maybe you need to practice in the car with a friend or a spouse. Maybe you just need to say, you know, the world says abortion is health care and women's rights. No, it's murder. No. The world says gender is a choice and a construct. And we got to say, no, in the beginning, God made them male and female. The world says love is love. And we got to say, no, sexual love is reserved between one man and one woman. And that's called marriage. You got to. Find it somewhere in there to say it. Sometimes you got to practice those John the Baptist muscles. I don't know. It's somewhere right here in the deltoids. You know, you just got to do this sometimes and feel, you know, I can speak truth. I can. When the world is rushing headlong into secularism and statism and just plain sin, the application of God's word will be a shock to the system. There will be different responses that are made. Just as Jesus said there are different types of soil, there are different responses to the application of truth. There might be instant repentance. You know that's always possible, right? I think we write off that that's actually possible. If the Ninevites can, so can you. Bumper sticker, boom, ready. Now, this is not the story today of the instant repentance, but it can happen. There could be utter rejection of God's word. That's what we see today, utter, complete rejection from Herodias. There could be an attempt to straddle the line. Now, we know that doesn't ever actually work. Herod tried it. Look at Herod's response to John's preaching. If you look at Mark 6, 20, I, I, this is interesting to me. It says that Herod, and this is a weird list, right? Herod feared John. Okay, keep that in your list. He knew he was righteous and holy. He agreed. His teaching perplexed him. That's confused. But he kind of liked it. He heard him gladly. 
Now, that's what I call weird. That's, that's a disengaged, mildly religious man. I was trying to think, do we have a term for this today? I think we do. I think it's called a good old boy. I think that's what we call that. It's when you have a level of respect for the office of prophet, no real deep-seated will toward the church. You're not trying to burn the place down, but generally confused about the theology, not on board with, the, with all the teachings, but you'll go and sit in a service in here and be offended and come back sometime. That's a good old boy. That's what we call that today. Now, we might listen to that and say, is that good? Is that good enough? Obviously not. There came a time for Herod to put what little faith he had into practice. The moment came. And he did not have the foundation or the boldness to stand up to his wife and spare John. He was influenced because good old boys and the mildly religious won't stand when the pressure cooker kicks up. So now, let's look at our second point today, which is a reality that many of us will face. Sometimes when you apply God's word faithfully, as John did, things get worse. People reject it, and tensions rise. In John's work as a prophet, we saw first God's word applied. Next, we see man's sin intensified. Man's sin intensified. Again, this is not always the case, but it is today. Read with me Mark 6, 21 onward, where Herod was content to straddle the line. Herodias had made her decision. She was waiting. 621. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. You can write, ooh, in the margin. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came and immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath... The king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Convoluted story, isn't it? Verse 21, an opportunity came. In the Greek, that's hemera eukairos, meaning uh, the day of good time. This was an opportune time, but for who? For Herodias, like Satan, she was waiting, watching, and scheming for the best moment to strike. Herod, as was his custom, had a big debased birthday party for himself and all the area bigwigs. And what was the entertainment? Well, I don't even like to say it, but Herod's stepdaughter, Herodias' daughter, was the entertainment. This was like a bachelor party environment. And just for the record, Christian men ought not have dancing women at their bachelor parties. Anybody going to amen with me? Okay, that was for free. No strippers at the Christian men's bachelor party. I'm just saying it. Sometime you got to find it in the sermon, and this was the day. So, and this young woman came in, 
and danced for the party guests. And apparently Herod was getting caught in the moment over his stepdaughter like the perv that he is. And he makes a public announcement to the crowd, I will give you whatever you want up till half my kingdom, just ask. Again, another tactic of Satan to make undeliverable promises, Herod did not have authority to give away half his kingdom. Rome would have squashed him like the cockroach that he is, but he still makes the promise as Satan often does. Fortunately for him, he makes a promise he could actually follow through with. So the girl hears the request, exits the party, goes behind the curtain, whispers to her mother Herodias in her ear, what should I ask for? And her response is, bring me his head. She would rather John die a gruesome death than for her sin to be repeatedly exposed. She would rather a holy man suffer for being faithful to God than to have to be reminded of her sin before a holy God. Does that sound familiar? It should, because Jesus endured the same thing on a larger scale. He was a holy man, even a sinless man, who died a gruesome death so that we would not have to be reminded of our sin before a holy God. It is now in this part of the story that we realize John the Baptist is the forerunner for Jesus' ministry and the forerunner for Jesus in death. Herod hears this request, and he is sorry. Verse 26, he didn't want to break his vow. Oh, what an honorable man. By all means, keep your foolish promise that you don't even have the authority to make to your stepdaughter who you shouldn't have been looking at, made by your illegitimate stolen wife, to kill a man that you said you had respect for. Please, honor your oath like the good man that you are. And so Herod gives the order. The executioner goes to the cell where John is kept, and he does the dirty deed. And they bring the head back, putting it on a platter to display, and they present it to the girls as the culmination of the entertainment of the evening. And at this moment, Herodias probably felt a mixture of relief and sordid victory. Now this meddling preacher won't remind me of my sin any longer. I got the last laugh. Look who's holding your severed head now, John. Power and politics always prevails over preaching. That's what she undoubtedly thought. And the story ends with verse 29. The disciples of John hear this news. They come get the headless body, and they give him a proper burial in a tomb, just like Jesus would one day have. And with no context, no biblical worldview, one might read this story and think, sin won. Herodias has won. John should have just stopped preaching. He could have saved his neck if he just cooled it, didn't talk about sin so much, if he just kept a low profile and didn't swing for people in power, he would have had a long, fruitful, happy ministry. And so the lesson of this text clearly today is this, don't be like John because you might lose your head, right? That's it, go home. Are we done? No. No. The biblical text is completed in verse 29. There's no more in Mark 6. The story's over. There's no more. But I've got another point that I want to give to you. I might preach a little bit. 
We've seen God's word applied. We've seen man's sin intensified. But I want you to see finally, number three, God's power is magnified. I'm not going to lie to you. When I read this story early in the week, I was sad. I thought, what a shame. You're probably feeling it. What a shame for the great prophet to die in such a disgraceful way at the hands of evildoers who feel completely justified in their sin. And we should be sad when a martyr dies, when a prophet or a preacher is persecuted for being faithful. And so in my flesh, I'm angry about this text. But in all cases, there's good questions and there's the best question. The best question is what does God think about this? Obviously, God had sorrow for his servant. But to borrow from John Piper's famous question from his sermon, don't waste your life, I think we must step back and ask, was this a tragedy? Was this a tragedy? And I think the answer would be no. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. Christians and preachers who can't bother themselves to say anything moderately uncomfortable or bold about sin while the world devolves into chaos. That's a tragedy. Far greater than preaching truth and being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus would call John blessed if he were there. John is a hero of the faith for his faithfulness, and for his boldness. John's boldness ought to inspire us today that it is better to be faithful and dead than phony and alive. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Herod and Herodias had the world. The fancy parties, the money, the political power. But they lost their soul. John may have lost his head, but he kept his soul. And furthermore, he's going to get a resurrected body when Jesus returns, and he will be with Jesus forever in the new Jerusalem, just like you will be if you are in Christ today. The story today is powerful. It ought to inform a lot about the way that we live our lives and do ministry. This story ought to not just be a cool story. It ought to have consequences in the way that we serve Jesus. I have two that I can think of right now, and there's more, I'm sure. Though it may seem on the surface like there was one death in the story, I actually see three deaths in this story. Two that I hope come from this story. The first additional death should be the idea that somehow we can be cool enough or relevant enough to win this world to Jesus. Look, John took the bold, hard-nosed prophet approach. He called it like he saw it. He wasn't ashamed for anything. He died because of it. Jesus loved the sinner and the outcast and made every effort to bring outsiders into the kingdom, but nevertheless, because of that pesky little phrase, repent and believe, he died. Paul, same story. Peter, same story. James, same story. All died for it. Every approach, listen, every approach for ministry based in faithfulness and truth ends the same way. So don't waste your life 
trying to dream up ways to be cool, hip, and relevant as a Christian while still holding on to some degree of biblical truth and being unashamed for Christ. There is no way. There is no way. Our culture today will not allow it any longer. The days of straddling the line are over. Do you understand? Now, cool church is going to die. Cool church is going to die. It might take five, ten years for them to run out of money, but it's going to happen. I believe that the only church prepared to stand before the Herods of this world is the church that is willing to boldly proclaim Christ faithfully. John killed cool, but he mastered faithfulness. Another death in this passage that I hope happens is the death of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that God's primary desire is to bless you with health and wealth and to elevate your position in life. Its proponents wear fancy suits and ride private jets and sell lies to poor people about healing and miracles and sowing seeds of faith so that you can give, you might get back. The story of John the Baptist is an absolute death knell to this false teaching. How? John was the greatest prophet ever in the words of Jesus. He preached exactly what God told him. He was unashamed of Jesus. He lived a holy life worthy of imitation. And what did he get? Banished to a prison cell where a greedy woman who didn't like his preaching manipulated her husband into cutting his head off and parading around his debased birthday party on a platter for the pleasure of his guests. His disciples had to get his headless body. The prosperity gospel sells lies all over the world that following Jesus and being faithful to God will make your life full of ease and material abundance. The true gospel says you might lose your head if you are faithful to Jesus Christ. So Christian, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? How then shall we live staring at this great impasse? What kind of Christian are we going to be in this present age. Hebrews 3:14 reminds me of this truth in perspective. It says, "For if we are listen, faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ." The measure of Christian success is this: faithful to the end, trusting God firmly. And if we do, we will receive the only gift in this world that matters. We will share in all that belongs to Christ Jesus. John received his crown and his shame became glory. As he entered into the presence of Christ, he lost his head, but he gained Christ for eternity. Pray with me.